I wanted to start this episode by telling you about how my own public school teachers taught me about race. But I basically have no memory of it. I do remember my seventh grade social studies teacher asking our all-white class to write a journal entry about whether we'd have owned slaves if we were Southern plantation owners. I hope she isn't doing that anymore. I remember a lot of lessons about slavery, actually. I remember learning about the Emancipation Proclamation and a little less about segregation. And I probably also learned about Black Americans getting the right to vote somewhere in there. But it wasn't until I was out of school and following my own interests that I really learned this stuff. I didn't know the full depth of slavery in the United States until I heard the 1619 Project. I didn't learn about white privilege until I learned about feminism and realized that all the advantages that men had were sort of an analog to the advantages I had as a white person. I didn't learn about the Tulsa Massacre when mobs of white people attacked black residents and destroyed 35 blocks of the wealthy black neighborhood known as Black Wall Street until I saw it depicted in the sci-fi show Lovecraft Country and Googled it to see if the writers made it up or if it actually happened. Yeah, it actually happened. That's my country. I wasn't taught important events in the history of my country. I wasn't taught about redlining, the federal government's early policy of refusing to insure mortgages in African-American neighborhoods while subsidizing suburban homes for whites. Instead, I was just left to assume that black people just liked living in the city more than white people did. It took pop science books and podcasts to teach me about the horrors of eugenics, racial issues with IQ testing, and the moral panic over Ebonics. This is my country, and my teachers left all of this out of my education. Which is why the current controversy over the teaching of so-called critical race theory and discussions of racism in school is kind of foreign to me. I mean, in my experience, it's harder to get teachers to talk about it than to not talk about it. As of this recording, at least six U.S. states have enacted bans on the teaching of critical race theory in public school classrooms. And almost 20 other states have introduced bills to do the same. A handful of states have also banned the teaching of the New York Times 1619 Project curriculum, the same information that made me more educated about the history of slavery in this country. But in the media coverage over whether or not critical race theory is actually being taught, or if it's just a catch-all buzzword to cover any discussion of race, I've started to wonder what it is as a concept. And I bet you have too. So today, we're going to talk about what critical race theory is and what it isn't. And in the process, we'll dive into the science of systemic racism. I'm Ashley Hamer, and this is Taboo Science, the podcast that answers the questions you're not allowed to ask.
So before we talk about what critical race theory is, we need to talk about what it's not. So much of what we're seeing in the media and at school board hearings and so much of what is being publicized is not really about critical race theory. But what we're seeing in mass, and if we look at all the state and federal legislation uh, and litigation, it's really a backlash to a lot of the progress made by Black people and other people of color. So what you see following the 2020 elections and, and political participation are these restrictions on voting voting rights. So what we're seeing in the classrooms in terms of state legislator, legislatures imposing restrictions on what can be taught in the classroom is part of that very same backlash. It is backlash to the acknowledgement of race, to the acknowledgement of the endurance of racism in American society in an attempt to censor what is happening in the classroom, what conversations are taking place and what's being taught. But to be clear, it's not about critical race theory. The term critical race theory has been uh, adopted intentionally so and mischaracterized to be a lightning rod for anything related to race. My name is Janelle George, and effective July 1st, yesterday, I am an associate professor of law at Georgetown University Law Center, and I am the founding director of the Racial Equity in Education Law and Policy Clinic. Janelle teaches a course on racial inequality in K-12 schools to Masters of Public Policy students. She told me that at first she thought it would be simple enough to teach them how to craft policy in ways that don't perpetuate inequality. But she realized she was going to need a tool, or a lens, to help the class really interrogate how policy is shaped, who it advantages, and who it disadvantages. That lens was critical race theory. Critical race theory originated in the legal academy in the 1970s. Uh, a lot of the originators, who are legal scholars to be clear, uh, Derek Bell, Kimberly Crenshaw, Patricia J. Williams, Mari Matsuda, Richard Delgado, and uh, Jean Stefancic really wanted to examine the endurance of racism in a post-civil rights era in America. Why was there still so much racial inequality in the face of the, of the progress of, of the civil rights movement? And so the uh, theory, critical race theory, really examines how the law can deepen racial inequality. For example, through discriminatory housing policies, through exclusionary school admissions practices, the redrawing of district boundary lines to create and foster segregated schools. And so, Critical race theorists really move this idea uh, that preceded, largely preceded Brown, the notion of racism, away from focusing on individual bad actors to looking at how systems like the legal system or the political system, the legislative process, if you will, could actually replicate racial inequality in this hierarchy that placed people of color at the bottom. Uh, in 
in American society. So it's a verb, it's not a noun, as Kimberly Crenshaw notes. It's an approach to interrogating how the law, how policy and other institutions and systems can replicate racial inequality. But again, what we're seeing now in the media is not critical race theory as it originated in the legal academy. To be clear, critical race theory is so dense. Um, this is one of my critical race theory readers. I've taught a course in critical race that uses a critical race theory framework for a couple of years at Georgetown's McCourt School of Public Policy. Believe me, there's no high schooler, I don't care how advanced you are, who is reading Richard Delgado's work. This, this is a kind of writing that is, is being examined by law students or other higher education programs such as sociology or education. Right. I'm curious as to why it came about in the 1970s. I know that was it was a little while after desegregation. And it seems like during segregation, it really was in the law. I mean, racism, there oh, were absolutely. racist laws. And then so what was the use of this in the 70s once those laws weren't there anymore? Was it sort of like to remind people that it was still in the law? No, that's that's a great question, because when you look at the 1954 case of Brown versus Board of Education, right, people, so many people think of that as this uh, turning point, if you will, in that after the Brown decision, racism was gone, segregated education was gone, and people began to characterize racism only in the context of the most vivid you know, angry white mobs outside of schoolhouses or clear Jim Crow laws or black and white segregated signs outside restaurants and facilities, right? There was that idea. And then many wanted to believe in an aspirational viewpoint of the Brown versus Board of Education decision that the court in, in America separated itself distance itself from that kind of racism. But what happened after Brown is a different iteration of racism emerged. It was not the explicit Jim Crow uh, segregation of the whites only sign, but it, it became, for example, the drawing of district boundary lines in ways that perpetuated segregated education. So you cannot advance racism by what the legal term is de jure under the cover of law, but de facto in practice, segregation was still very much prevalent, right? And of course, racism extends far far beyond just desegregation. So Derek Bell, I mentioned one of the originators of critical race theory, had been a litigator for the NAACP Legal Defense and Educational Fund. So he had litigated a lot of desegregation cases. And he saw how, yes, the law can be a tool of oppression, but it can also be transformed into a tool of emancipation. Right. But again, after litigating so many of these cases, he wondered why is segregation still a reality? So after Brown in 1954, there was Brown II in 1955. There was a signing of, of the Southern Manifesto by Southern congressmen uh, who vowed to defy Brown. 
And then what you saw is subsequent litigation for well over a decade. It really wasn't until the passage of the Civil Rights Act in 64 and the Elementary and Secondary Education Act in 1965, when the federal government leveraged the power of the purse to secure demand, really compliance with desegregation, that you saw that kind of ad advancement in desegregation, right? But if you look at the defiance, uh, Prince Edward County in Virginia, they closed their public schools for five years rather than desegregate. Many Southern states repealed compulsory education laws so that they could close their public schools. Virginia passed a law to bar state funding to schools that agreed to desegregate and to close those schools. So in the wake of Brown, there was so much resistance. Likewise, in the wake of the racial reckoning that followed the, the killing of George Floyd, uh, that we saw all over the world last summer and, and increased political participation by people of color in the elections last fall, you're seeing backlash, backlash to progress. You're seeing backlash to the centering of racial inequality and the recognition that it endures. I'm calling this now not massive resistance, but moderate resistance, right? It's another iteration and it is just as insidious and harmful and injurious to people of color as the racial expletives that, that they would use in, in the 1950s, right? It is just as harmful and we, and it's harmful to all of us, not just to people of color, but to all of us, white people, uh, Latinx people, black people, Asian Americans, we can see that in terms of the deep divisions that we have. This kind of backlash to racial progress is super common, even on an individual level and even outside the U.S. In a 2017 study published in the European Journal of Social Psychology, British participants read an article about the proportion of immigrants in the U.K. over the next 40 years. Half of them read that it would stay the same, and the other half read that there would eventually be more immigrants than white British people. Those who read that immigrants would overtake white Brits were more likely to oppose improving living conditions for immigrants. When a country is in turmoil, it's also more likely to restrict civil liberties. And people under threat are more likely to support those restrictions. A meta-analysis published last year found that support for those restrictions extends much more to outgroup members, like people of a different race than you, than it does to your own group. It's as if we think people who aren't like us are less deserving of human rights. So from a psychological level, backlash kind of makes sense. Studies like this are an important way to figure out what we can do to avoid this. When it comes to the U.S., Janelle says backlashes like this happened at three important moments in history. So if we look at post-Civil War, uh, we had a brief period of Reconstruction. We had black members of Congress. Folks don't realize that, right? Barack Obama was not the first black senator. We had a couple of black senators and several black congressmen. And actually, although they as enslaved black people had been denied because it was illegal 
to teach an enslaved person to read or write, although they had been denied education, they helped to craft the modern day education system. Pre-Civil War, the only people who went to school were wealthy white families. If you were from a poor white family, you did not go to school. And definitely if you were enslaved, you were denied that opportunity. They passed compulsory education laws and education at that point was deemed so significant, it became a requirement in state constitutions to include an education clause as a condition for readmission to the union. So five years into Reconstruction, every Southern state had enshrined in their constitutions a right to education. That's when education became more widely available for more people. And what we saw is the truncating of the Reconstruction era, violence, lynching, or just racial terror. You know, last month we commemorated the 100th anniversary of the Tulsa massacre just a lot of widespread horror and terror. You saw the disenfranchisement again, mainly through lynching of black people. And again, we didn't have a US Senator again until we did have Barack Obama. That's how significant these things are. And again, so many people think, oh, this is more benign. No one's lynching people in the same way, right? Police, you know, other, other forms aside, right? No one's hanging a whites only sign. No one's, you know, uh, screaming racial slurs. So many people don't equate what we're witnessing now with that same kind of backlash, right? But again, it's a different form. They co-opt the language of the civil rights movement. They talk about equality. They even call efforts to advance racism racist. It's so disingenuous. They misconstrue uh, so many things. And this adoption of the term critical race theory is really also uh, capitalizing on the complexity of critical race theory. Most people don't know what critical race theory is. You know, I've, I have master's level students in my course in McCourt and, and PhD students, and it takes them quite a while to understand what critical race theory is and its key tenets. Right. So what better political ploy than to use something so complex to confuse and conflate with other things that you oppose in an attempt to maintain white supremacy? So we have to expose this for what it actually is. So, yeah, she just said that master's students have a tough time understanding the key tenets of critical race theory. But... Hey, let's give it a try. The key tenants are recognizing, again, the endurance of racism in, in America, particularly in a post-civil rights era. The recognition moving beyond uh, confining racism to individual bad actors to recognizing that systems and institutions can actually do the bulk of replicating racial inequality. And it also recognizes and centers the stories and narratives of people of color. So critical race theory, like any legal theory, I, I mean, again, K through 12 children are not learning about legal originalism, right? It's evolving, it's changing as more people do scholarship and analyze it. So it's, it's not, it can be confined to a static definition, but those are a few of the key tenets of critical race theory. And I would encourage folks who are interested, and again, this is dense theory, 
Um, read like the reader, the Kimberly Crenshaw, Neil Gotanda, Gary Peller, and Kendall Thomas edited about key writings from the movement, as well as Kiara Bridges, who is a law professor at UC Berkeley, has an amazing primer on critical race theory and what it means, right? But I can tell you, Ashley, most folks are not going to order the critical race theory reader. Right. And if they do, they're going to start with some of these dense legal scholarship pieces, articles. Right. And, you know, kind of give up. So I think it's important for us to ask instead. What are we opposing? What are we afraid of? Are we opposing the uh, recognition of racial inequality in America? Are we opposing the teaching about the history and culture of so many other people of color who are Americans and have likewise shaped this country and contributed to this country? What are we actually opposing? Because I can tell you in, in the time that I've taught this course, and to be clear, most of my students are, are white students it's at, at Georgetown University, I've never had a teaching evaluation or an email or feedback from a student saying, I as a white student feel like I am being cast as an oppressor in this course. To the contrary, many of them are shocked and feel deprived of having the opportunity to learn more about America. We all learn more about ourselves by learning about this full history. It's not about casting anyone as a victim or anyone as an oppressor. White people casting ourselves as victims is a big part of how white supremacy operates, since it shuts down the conversation and bars any further progress. Even pointing out that white people have a race is threatening. A 2014 paper by Eric D. Knowles and colleagues argues that the identity of whiteness presents white people with two psychological threats. One is the possibility that their accomplishments in life were not fully earned, and the other is the association with a group that benefits from unfair social advantages. After all, if people of color are systematically disadvantaged in society, that means that white people are systematically advantaged and maybe we're not as special and deserving as we thought. But like I said, studies like this can help us figure out ways to prevent these kinds of reactions. That paper says that white people who feel threatened by this fact have three options. They all start with D, so it's easy to remember. They can deny that white privilege exists. They can distance their own identity from that of a quote-unquote white person. Or they can strive to dismantle these systems of privilege. And efforts to reduce inequality should focus on bringing out that last strategy in people. One way to reduce our feelings of threat altogether is self-affirmation. A 2008 study in the Journal of Experimental Social Psychology found that when white people wrote about a value that was important to them, they were more willing to conceive of racism in institutional terms, as opposed to something that's only done by individuals. I should point out that they weren't any less likely to believe in individual racism with or without the self-affirmation, which the researchers say shows how the idea that racism is something done by individual bad actors is less of a threat to white people's egos. One thing said by those in favor of banning the teaching of so-called critical race theory in K-12 classrooms, which, again, is not being taught, 
is that talking about race divides us and leads to more racism. Is that true? Well, lots and lots of studies have shown that labeling people with categories does lead to a sort of in-group, out-group mentality, but not a negative one. And reducing people's awareness of those categories doesn't reduce the out-group mentality in the first place. In fact, several studies have been able to reduce stereotypes by having people think about social categories and practice rejecting their negative associations. Like something as simple as shaking their head no every time they saw a picture of a black person paired with a negative stereotype. Likewise, in studies where the participants read a description of someone either written to be quote-unquote colorblind or written to include information about their culture and ethnicity, those who read that second description showed no more bias than the colorblind group. But they were more accurate in their judgments of the person afterward. Because here's the thing. Race is still important, even if, from a biological perspective, it isn't actually real. What does it mean for race to be a social construct? That's a great question. So, for example, let's look at the institution of slavery. Uh, the condition of being enslaved was inheritable through one's mother, not through the father, because many white enslavers actually raped uh, the enslaved black women and fathered children. Uh, so the condition of being enslaved was inheritable through one's mother. And so that's how uh, that condition, that status was passed from generation to generation. There weren't really pre-founding of this country these, these categories of black or white, et cetera, until we had the divisions, right, determined by this institution of slavery. And so in the 90s, there was this project, the Human Genome Project that was conducted to find out, are there really racial differences? Are we genetically different? It actually found that all of us across all perceived races share 99.9% .9 of the same genetics. This is an important point to explain because it's not intuitive, right? Like, how can race not be genetic when we look so different? Well, it comes down to the fact that humans are way more diverse than the neat racial categories scientists came up with back in the 1700s. Right around when the Human Genome Project was coming to a close, a team of Stanford scientists decided to look at where in the world different alleles popped up. Now, alleles are like the different flavors of a gene. Like you and I both have the same gene for hair, but we might have different hair colors thanks to our different alleles. So anyway, these scientists found that more than 92% of alleles were found in two or more regions of the world, and nearly half were found in every geographical region they looked at. That makes sense. I mean, think about skin color. There are indigenous people in Africa, India, and Australia with dark skin, but they aren't considered to be the same race. Same goes for a person's hair type, nose shape, eye shape, and on and on and on. What these scientists found is that there is more diversity within a given geographical region than there is between any two regions. 
less than 8% of the alleles they studied were actually specific to one region. And where those existed, they occurred in less than 1% of the people from that region. Not exactly a hallmark of a person's race. So if race isn't genetically real, does that mean that it doesn't matter? Not in the slightest. Now, what's interesting is we look different, we appear different, and so our appearance may have social consequences. For example, I present as, as a Black woman, and I can tell you, pre-COVID, when I would go to New York for meetings, that had social consequences that determine whether or not I could get a cab to get uptown to a meeting, right? It determines what realtors think of me when they meet me and they choose to represent me, right? It, it determines if I'm stopped by law enforcement, how that interaction may escalate. So even though the Human Genome Project has found that this idea of race is not genetically real, it is socially real, and it does have social consequences for what race you may be perceived to be. So race has social consequences. And some of those are baked in to the laws we live by. In what ways is racism embedded in our society? And is that on purpose? Oh, absolutely. You know, another thing that I tell my students is that policy always has a purpose. It, it can seem benign. It can seem like, oh, we are just you know, passing a, a certain law or something like that, that it is not about inequality, right? But it very much is. So let me give you, share some examples from Gloria Ladson Billings, who has done great scholarship about education and, and critical race theory, uh, because I think most folks understand the education context. So first of all, looking at the curriculum, which is interestingly enough, of course, a target of so many of these proposed bans, proposed and passed bans on critical race theory. So if we look at what students are traditionally taught, it's a curriculum that traditionally excludes the history and lived experiences of people of color. It casts white Americans as, as like the heroes in the story and ignores the contributions of enslaved persons and other people of color. You also see, and I, I fear for this in a post-COVID return to school, this focus on remediation for students of color, right? This constant casting of students of color is in need of remediation. Narrow testing that teaches only, doesn't reflect rather, doesn't accurately reflect what students know. And then many people take the results of those tests and use them to confirm this idea of the ineducability or the limited intellectual capacity of children of color. School discipline. So if you have a school discipline policy that says no one can wear locks in their hair, Okay, I'm from Seattle. You might have some white students who wear locks, but I promise you that disproportionately, the students who, who will be impacted by that policy are students of color, Black students in particular, who are more likely to wear their hair in locks. So even though the discipline code or that provision is what we call in the law facially neutral, 
It doesn't say black students can't wear their hair in locks. It just says students can't wear their hair in locks. And it just so happens that black students are the most likely to wear their hair in locks. So the students who will be disproportionately impacted are black students. That's an example of how something embedded in a law or policy can perpetuate inequality because we have these high rates of infractions of students of color and research has showed students of color don't actually misbehave more than their white peers, but they're more subjected to discipline, to be punished for discipline infractions. And finally, the last example I will provide is the persistence of racial segregation in education. I, I mentioned the drawing of district boundary lines. Detroit is a strong example of that. You know, all the Black families didn't get together and say, hey, let's move to the inner city of Detroit. There were actual discriminatory real estate practices so that when there were integration and desegregation orders, federal orders issued, white families left the city of Detroit, moved out to the surrounding suburbs. Black families couldn't move there because they had what were called racially restricted covenants. And, and literally in the deed of a home, it would say something like, you cannot sell this home to a black family right? Or real estate agents would just steer Black families to the inner cities. So that's how over time Detroit became predominantly Black. And with so much of the departure of white families, resources were diverted to those surrounding suburbs. And there were attempts, there were legal attempts to foster desegregation between the suburban white students and the Black students. Uh, the most notable is the Milliken versus Bradley case, but the Supreme Court actually said in, in what Myron Orfield uh, calls a doctrinally indefensible ruling that you can't force these the students from the white suburbs to desegregate with the inner city Detroit students and Thurgood Marshall, who was then a Supreme Court justice, he had argued the Brown case as director counsel of the Legal Defense Fund, he said, um, there is no hope <laughs> with a plan that only includes Detroit. Black students can't desegregate amongst themselves. And the court said, you can't compel the white students because, oh, by the way, these white only districts aren't the result. They're not intentional, but they were. White families fled Detroit to uh, circumvent desegregation. So with that case, the court basically rubber stamped these more ingenious ways to, or disingenuous, I should say, ways to undermine uh, desegregation. We found more creative ways to foster division and separation, and that harms all of us. This is not about critical race theory. This is about citizenship. This is about democracy. And this is about ensuring that we have uh, children coming out of our, our K through 12 system who are prepared to participate, and not just K through 12, because some of these bands expand to higher education. So this is really about democracy. This is about freedom, freedom of speech, and also knowing that if we don't have the courage to confront the endurance of racism, we will not be able to reach true reconciliation.
and actually deal with it. Uh, Brian Stevenson of the Equal Justice Initiative talks about this all the time. And he talks about traveling to Germany. And he says, you can't walk a few steps without seeing a plaque that talks about the Holocaust. In, in school in Germany, all students are required to learn about the Holocaust. And it's not to cast the German students as bad people, but it's to understand the history and ensure that it is not repeated. And we just spoke about three iterations, post-Reconstruction, post-Brown versus Board of Education, and right now, that we are embroiled in backlash to racial progress. How do we ensure that this doesn't happen again? in the next, next few decades. We have to have that kind of education for all of our children. Thanks for listening. Taboo Science is written and produced by me, Ashley Hamer. The theme was by Danny Lapotka of DLC Music. Big thanks to Janelle George. You can check out an excellent op-ed column she wrote for Education Week entitled Critical Race Theory Isn't a Curriculum, It's a Practice to learn more about critical race theory. You know, if her excellent explanations just weren't enough for you. In the meantime, you can follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at Taboo Science or leave the show a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. If you leave a review, I might even read it on the show. It's happened before. The next episode will be out in two weeks. Stay tuned. <laughs>